0: By mid-June 1675, Plymouth Colony and the Poconoke at Wampanoag were on the brink of war. Wampanoag warriors were dancing, dancing, dancing for days on end, arrayed in their powder horns and shot pouches and brandishing their muskets, evoking the spirit of war. Some historians believe that Metacomet, King Philip to the English colonists was not yet ready for war, that he was actually planning to stockpile arms and powder and shot and build alliances for a spring 1676 offensive. It didn't matter though whether he was ready for it or not, war was upon him. His young men were in no mood for patient waiting. They were tired of humiliation and loss and a world of diminishing prospects they were ready to start killing Englishmen but their powwows shamans handed down a mystical injunction if the Wampanoag were to prevail against the English the English must draw first blood so these restless and angry warriors played a game of provocation Wampanoag warriors visited nearby English settlements and behaved in in a belligerent and confrontational way. They killed livestock, stole tools, and when English settlers fled the area fearing that, that war was in fact imminent, the warriors burned homes that had been abandoned by those fearful Puritan settlers but they did not draw blood. Let's pause here for a moment right on the brink of this catastrophe and pull back for a look at the lay of the land and the tactical and strategic position of the Wampanoag and the English colonists. You might want to, uh, to look for a, a map of, of New England um, while we talk about this so that you can get a, a sense of the geography, I'll try to describe it as, as best I can. Metacomet's people, the Pokanoket Wampanoag, and there were several groups of, of Wampanoag um, that he was the, the sachem over, but his direct control um, was with the Pokanokets, who were headquartered at Mount Hope, on a peninsula that fingers south out into Mount Hope Bay and toward Narragansett Bay and what is now Rhode Island. The Plymouth Colony lay to their north and the northeast with the small community of Swansea situated close to the neck of the peninsula north of Mount Hope. The peninsula was made up of pretty rough terrain. Um, a lot of that area at that time was bog and swamp that would be hard to penetrate but the place was vulnerable because it was a peninsula. The English had ships to control the waterways and a force could just push down the peninsula and corner the Wampanoag. So they had some tactical advantages in defense and some real vulnerabilities. The English settlements were also vulnerable Their homes were scattered among field and and forest. Even if they were congregated together, they were isolated from each other. Swansea and other towns had usually one defensible structure called a garrison house, which was traditionally a private home of unusual size and very stout construction to which other families could rally if there was a, a threat. And uh, Swansea had one of these strong houses, which was known as the Miles Garrison. Um, Miles was a Baptist pastor. Um, the Wampanoag only had about 250 warriors to put into the field at maximum. And Metacom and often only directly led a few dozen, actually, um, in a, a great portion of this conflict. To have any hope of a successful campaign, Metacomet absolutely had to activate an alliance with more numerous people like the Nipmuc and the Narragansett. Even then, though, the native forces were vastly outnumbered by the militia that the colonists could field, particularly when all five of the New England colonies, Massachusetts Bay, Plymouth, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and New Hampshire, united to meet the threat of a general uprising. But man for man, at this stage, at the beginning of the conflict, the Indians were the superior fighting men. Some of them had combat experience in intertribal conflicts with people like the Mohicans of of Connecticut, who uh, remained allied with the English throughout uh, this period. And all of them were experienced woodsmen who could cover rough terrain quickly and quietly and efficiently. And ambush was second nature to them. It resembled hunting, and, and it was a natural tactical technique for, for them. They were well-armed, with flintlock muskets, and they were in general, again because they did a lot of hunting, and and this and a firearm was a, uh, a common tool for them, where a plow might have been uh, to an English settler. These Wampanoag were better shots and quicker on the reload than colonial militiamen were, and they were also proficient with melee weapons like knives, tomahawks, and and war clubs. And uh, while the flintlock musket had become their dominant weapon, uh, some of them still had considerable skill with a bow. Again, there's a downside. The Wampanoag's reliance on firearms also made them vulnerable. While there had been some access to trade with the Dutch when they were in control of New Amsterdam, which would become New York, And with the French, um, often through native intermediaries, they were mostly dependent on the English for their firearms trade. So they had traditionally gotten their their weapons from the people who were now their enemy. And the Plymouth Colony and other New England um, colonial authorities would clamp down really hard on that trade, once hostilities began, and that left the Wampanoag and other native warriors dependent really on battlefield acquisition to maintain their muskets and a supply of powder and shot. And uh, that is, uh, is not a, a particularly stain- sustainable uh, form of logistics. The Puritan colonists were part of an organized militia system, and they were heirs to a, a very proud military tradition. Some of the colonists probably had some long-ago experience fighting in the English Civil Wars, where Cromwell's, Oliver Cromwell's Puritan New Model Army dominated the battlefield. Uh, the New Model Army was probably the best army in Europe in the middle of the 17th century. The colonial militias also had the advantage of numbers and they had cavalry units, which gave them mobility and the ability to respond quickly to the site of an attack. But at the beginning of the war, the proficiency level of of all arms of the militia was pretty low. Uh, Some units were still armed with matchlock muskets, which were the standard in mid-century, but they were clumsy and heavy, and uh, not very reliable, particularly in uh, in woodland conditions where they were sub- more subject to the weather. And um, some were still carrying pikes, which was part of a uh, you know European order: musket and pike form of combat that just was not suited at all to, uh, to forest warfare. They adapted quickly and it, and it wouldn't be very long before edicts came down from all of the, the colonies mandating that all of the forces be properly armed with flintlock muskets. And they all, the, uh, militiamen also carried flintlock pistols, hatchets, and, and sometimes, uh, particularly for officers, cutlasses or hunting swords, which is a, a, uh, a short sword, think, uh, think of a pirate sword, um, and you've got a pretty good idea of what, uh, what that looks like. These Puritan settlers were a very tough-minded bunch. They saw the outbreak of a major Indian war as evidence of their own slippage of faith. A test from God that they must steel themselves to meet. It's hard to quantify qualities like that, but it seems pretty clear that this stern and, and really bleak faith put steel on their spines in the face of, of the horrors of war. And it also uh, provoked and justified some brutal and cruel, cruel actions when they got the upper hand. Um, they really felt that they were fighting minions of the devil. And, uh, you know, when you're fighting Satan, anything goes right. But, uh, I do think that, that their faith played an important role in, uh, creating a certain level of, of resiliency, even in the face of, of heavy casualties and, and multiple disasters. So, that was sort of the, the military situation at the beginning of the conflict. And this provocation dance that was going on in, in the middle of June in 1675 couldn't go on forever. Something was going to, to happen. The war musket was loaded. The pan was primed. The flint was napped sharp. And by June... 23rd and 24th, it was drawn to full cock. It only awaited someone to pull the trigger for the charge to explode. And it turns out that it was a Puritan boy who pulled that trigger and ignited the catastrophe. Russell Bourne in his book, The Red King's Rebellion, Racial Politics in New England, 1675-1678, to 1678, describes how it went down. Swansea was reported to be a pretty little town in 1675, 30 or 40 new houses centered around a Baptist church. It stood at the head of tidal rivers that run down to Mount Hope Bay, just above the neck of land that connects the Poconoka Peninsula to the mainland. In threatening times like these, it seemed a long way from the military base at Plymouth, 40 miles of complex trails away. Like Rehebeth, near Totten and Dartmouth, this town's farmer residents had grown prosperous on the bountiful but uneasy western perimeter of Plymouth's territories. Swansea's scattered houses seemed ideal targets for any Poconocets bent on mischief. Farm tools and household objects were within easy reach of unemployed young braves. Though there had been years of cooperative exchange between the Poconocots and the Swansea residents, exchanges of food, of services, of agricultural labor, there were also annoyances, the pesky regulations about what could and what could not be done on the Sabbath, and the eternally destructive farm animals were too. The situation had been livable, if delicate. Now it was incendiary. Plymouth decreed that throughout its towns, June 24th should be observed as a day of fasting and humiliation, in hopes that the God who determined all might be persuaded to aid his people, the English people, in this time of crisis. Swansea's settlers dutifully walked to meeting on that Thursday, and the natives, noticing unprotected fields and farms, contemplated their opportunities. Some may have contemplated the sayings of Wampanoag shamans, as reported by anthropologist William Simmons, that the natives could win the imminent war only if the English fired the first shot. At one Swansea farm, a boy and an old man, excused from church services and charged with guard duty, looked out and saw in the field beyond the barn just what they had dreaded most, Poconocet slitting the throats of cows let out to graze. The boy did as he was told. He fetched the musket and opened fire. He had no idea that he'd be the one responsible by history for having shed the first blood in what would become King Philip's War. His shot fatally wounded a marauding Pokanoket, who was dragged away by his people. Later, in swift reaction, other Pokanokets killed three, then six Swansea citizens returning from church services. The day of prayer had become a day of vengeful death. The New England colonies responded to the attack on Swansea under the assumption that it marked a general uprising. Under the circumstances, it's an understandable response, but it also had the effect of a self-fulfilling prophecy. The Narragansetts and the Nipmunk saw the mobilization as a threat to them and were cool to the point of menacing to diplomatic embassies sent out by the colonies to try to keep them out of the conflict. Perhaps these two powerful peoples would have gone to war in any case. They, as much as the Wampanoags, were feeling the pressure of settler encroachment, economic strains, and cultural and religious assimilation. They may have seen the explosion of violence of Swansea as a now-or-never opportunity to wage an effective war against the English. As is often the case, once the trigger was pulled on June 24th, 1675, war developed its own momentum just like a wildfire creates its own wind in the days immediately after the Swansea killings militia units began arriving at the Miles Garrison, among the first to arrive was a carpenter and woodsman named Benjamin Church Church looms very large in frontier partisan history he's really an archetype and is regarded by many as America's first ranger, but at this stage of the conflict, he was just a militia captain, although one who was in his own estimation, exceptionally spirited in the work. Another standout figure was Captain Samuel Moseley, who brought down a company of militia from Boston, comprised in part of sailors and wharf rats and servants and apprentices who were semi-piratical in their speech and demeanor. They were a very colorful lot and looked like they would be pretty mean in a fight. And they were also very shocking to the sensibilities of pious and straight-laced Puritan farmers and tradesmen. With the garrison full of 300 or so militiamen, the Puritans were emboldened to try to take the fight to the enemy who were ensconced just across a river bridge and who had been harassing the garrison, including capturing two soldiers, scalping them, and cutting off their hands and feet. The militiamen's blood was up. Unfortunately for them, their enthusiasm exceeded their capability, and the enthusiasm didn't hold up under fire. Church, writing many, many years later, offers a lively account of what turned out to be kind of a dangerous farce. I should note that Church's writing was probably actually done by his son and probably dictated to him, so he's writing in the third person, as one does. Quartermasters Gill and Belcher commanded the parties drawn out, who earnestly desired Mr. Church's company. They provided him a horse and furniture, his own being out of the way. He readily complied with their desires and was soon mounted. This party were no sooner over Miles Bridge, but were fired on by an ambuscado of about a dozen Indians, as they were afterwards discovered to be. When they drew off, the pilot was mortally wounded. Mr. Belcher received a shot in the knee, and his horse was killed under him. Mr. Gill was struck with a musket ball on the side of his belly, but being clad in a buff coat and some thickness of paper under it, it never broke his skin. The troopers were surprised to see both their commanders wounded and wheeled off. But Mr. Church persuaded at length, stormed and stamped, and told them 'twas a shame to run and leave a wounded man there to become prey to the barbarous enemy. For the pilot yet sat his horse, though so mazed with the shot as to not have sense to guide him. Mr. Gill seconded him and offered, though much disabled, to assist in bringing him off. Mr. Church asked a stranger who gave them his company in that action if he would go with them and fetch off the wounded man. He readily consented. They with Mr. Gill went, but the wounded man fainted and fell off his horse before they came to him. But Mr. Church and the stranger dismounted, took up the man dead, and laid him before Mr. Gill on his horse. Mr. Church told the other two if they would... Take care of the dead man, he would go and fetch his horse back. And here Church uses an archaic term for causeway. He would go and fetch his horse back, which was going off the causey toward the enemy. But before he got over the causey, he saw the enemy run to the right into the neck. He brought back the horse and called earnestly and repeatedly to the army to come over and fight the enemy. And while he stood calling and persuading, the skulking enemy returned to their old stand, and all discharged their guns at him at one clap, though every shot missed him. Yet one of the army on the other side of the river received one of the balls in his foot. Mr. Church now began, no succor coming to him, to think it was time to retreat, saying, The Lord have mercy on us if such a handful of Indians shall thus dare such an army. This was just the first of many frustrations that. Uh, that Benjamin Church would experience in the uh, opening stages of King Philip's war before he was given his own independent command and allowed to do things his way on his own hook, which we will cover uh, in depth in its own episode. Captain Mosley's hooligans had a better time of it in a small action a short time later when they stormed across the bridge and ran down a party of about ten Wampanoag warriors, killing six of them. These were minor actions, really, but the militia soon geared up for a real push down the Mount Hope Peninsula, or the Poconocet Peninsula, with the aim of cornering King Philip and his men and taking their headquarters town. The militiamen proceeded very cautiously and slowly, believing that Metacomet had 500 warriors waiting for them, which was ridiculous, but it's not uncommon to uh, exaggerate the amount of force that the, the enemy might be able to bring to bear. They were made even more uneasy when they marched into the ruins of a small English settlement at Kickamut which had been abandoned as tensions mounted between the Wampanoag and the settlers. Nathaniel Philbrook describes the scene. Tensions were already high among the militiamen. What they saw at Kikamut only made them more apprehensive of what lay ahead. The abandoned houses had all been burned, But even more disturbing than the blackened and smoking remnants of a once-thriving community were the pieces of paper seen fluttering in the air, paper that soon proved to be the torn pages of a Bible. For this overwhelmingly Puritan force, it was a shocking outrage to know that the Indians had ripped apart this most sacred of books and scattered God's words to the wind, in hatred of our religion. Then, three miles later, they discovered the remains of eight Englishmen killed five days earlier at the nearby settlement of Matapaset. The Indians had mounted the men's heads, scalps, and hands on poles and planted them beside the roadside in what one commentator described as a barbarous and inhuman manner, bidding us defiance. The body parts were quickly buried, and the soldiers continued on. When the Puritan force reached Metacomet's base at Mount Hope, they found it very recently abandoned. Metacomet and his warriors, along with an unknown number of women and children, had fled, and no one knew where. Actually, Benjamin Church had a pretty good idea. He figured that they had taken canoes east across Mount Hope Bay to the Pocasset Wampanoag country, governed by his sister-in-law, the the so-called Squaw Sachem Wiedemoo. That was, in fact, what had happened. Metacomet swept up the people of a reluctant and then turned northwest, moving into the interior of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, or toward the Massachusetts Bay Colony, in what really was a pretty expert demonstration of escape and evasion. The Puritan force, despite church's urging, declined to pursue the Wampanoag, occupying themselves with destroying acres of Indian corn, and building a fort and proclaiming, a victory. Church was frustrated and disgusted, writing years later, that 'twas their fear rather than their courage that obliged them to set up marks of their conquest. Medicomet had escaped the bag his forces were in on the Pocono Peninsula, but not without cost. He reportedly left some slow-moving women and children perhaps as many as a hundred behind in the Pocasset Swamp. The Wampanoag insurgents were making their way northwest into Nipma country, which encompassed northern Rhode Island and central Massachusetts, where Metacomet expected not only to find refuge, but a powerful ally in his war. But he wouldn't get away clean. About 250 Mohegan warriors from Connecticut got on his trail, and caught up with him at Nipsuchuk on August 1st, and in swampy terrain again. And in a sharp firefight, the Mohegans, accompanied by a few settler militiamen, killed 23 of Metacomet's men, including a handful of his more seasoned warriors who were fighting a rearguard action to let the main body escape somehow Metacomet with now only about 40 effective warriors did manage to escape to the Nipmuc, who by this time had started launching attacks of their own against the English. And this kind of marked the end of the first phase of King Philip's war. And we'll discuss later whether it really should be, at this point, considered King Philip's war At all anymore. You can look at this first stage of the war in a variety of ways. On one level, Metacomet had been successful. The Wampanoag had punished the English, attacking and destroying settlements and killing more than a few settlers. They had evaded a far superior force and ultimately found sanctuary among an allied people who were themselves primed to carry the fight to the settlers. On the other hand, Metacomet had been driven out of his home territory. Many of his people had been killed and captured. Many of those would be sold into slavery, another topic that we'll we'll take up uh, in, in some depth in a later episode. And they had lost most of their possessions. Far from being a Red King commanding an army, he was really an exhausted and harried Sachem who really would not have much influence on the war that would bear his name in history. And that war was about to get very, very bloody. In our next episode, we'll explore how what might have been contained as a localized conflict between the Plymouth Colony and Metacomets-Wampanoag, exploded into a New England-wide conflagration of really unprecedented destructiveness. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to to note, in this is true in, in any kind of historical subject, but it's particularly true in King Philip's War, various historians and and uh, cultural interpreters can view the same set of facts in in wildly varying ways in terms of their their meaning impact and, and significance and uh, that's one of the enjoyable things about exploring this topic for me um, I've read you know a wide range of, of books and and uh, you know, One of the reasons that it's taken me a little bit of time to to get this podcast up and running is because I, I, I'm trying to find my own through line and my own sense of, of not just what played out, but why and how and what it all means. Um, again, interestingly, Douglas Leach's book, which was written in 1958, titled Flintlock and Tomahawk, remains sort of the sun that everything or orbits around. Even people who uh, disagree very considerably with his sort of triumphalist um, historical point of view on the events, they're reacting to them. It's, it was an exhaustive account, the, the factual account from which all others draw um, and and even people who are 180 degrees uh, in opposition to his interpretations of events, which again are are you know pretty much of of a triumphalist school of inevitable conflict between a uh, superior civilization and a uh, perhaps admirable but barbarous um, native population. Even those who are completely opposed to that point of view are in in fact reacting to it and i i find that always kind of a a fascinating phenomenon there's a variety of really excellent books i quoted from uh russell Bourne's the red king's rebellion um that's a particularly interesting read to me and uh I uh, highly recommend it. I think that uh you know and 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 by all means, I encourage anyone who' develops an interest in in this topic because of listening to this podcast that you dive into the into the the reading because no matter how much depth I go into in a in a podcast it it can only scratch the surface, and there is just so much so much here, and it's so rich and uh so profoundly meaningful to the uh, rest of American history, so by all means delve in, read the books. The Red King's Rebellion is 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 quite good. Um, also working my way through King Philip's War, Civil War in New England by James Drake, um, and his point of view is that that uh, as the, the title implies that this was really a civil war uh, that occurred in a. Pretty high-functioning, multicultural, bicultural, and biracial society in New England, and uh, and all the more tragic for that. It's a little bit more dense and ap- academic, but it's a it's a very interesting thesis, and it and it is very much in opposition to the um, kind of clash of civilizations paradigm that um, that used to prevail in these studies. There's other books. I won't go into a long list right now. Um, probably at the end of this, I'll I'll maybe do a, a whole episode on on book recommendations. Um, I will say one more thing. Um, if you've got any interest in this at all, any interest in frontier history, really, you have to read uh, Benjamin Church's memoir because it's just, I mean it's archetypal in a lot of ways um and uh i'll say no more about it now because like i said we're doing a full episode on on church and it'll probably come up then but uh wow is it something else to to read uh, is his memoir written many many years after the events of the conflicts and and a couple of wars later too so anyway i will uh i will wrap this this episode up um as you can probably tell, I'm really enjoying this journey and I appreciate having you along with me on it, on the trail here, through forest, bog, and, and swamp. And uh, I want to particularly uh, give a shout out to the patrons who have made this uh, um, possible through their, their support on our Patreon page, which uh, is linked in the notes. That's Rick Schwartfeger, David Rolson. Paul McNamee, Matthew, free, live free, Jerry Nunnally, Alan Godseff, Bob Dice, Chaz Clifton, Wade McKnight, Mike McIver, Gary Kaiser, and Ash. Uh, good, good company on these, uh, these perilous trails. So, thank you to them, and thank you to all of you who are listening to this podcast, and, uh, sharing it with your friends, and we'll see you down the trail.